Welcome to the public morality. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who recently passed, was the most recognizable name and face on the Supreme Court. With movies in her honor, her unwavering commitment to equality, even videos that chronicled her workout routine, she became a feminist icon known by the moniker Notorious RBG. Just days before her passing, a new book was released as part of a series by Penguin Liberty, Decisions and Dissents of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It was edited by one who was no stranger to the public morality, Professor Corey Brettschneider. Professor Brettschneider is a political scientist and law professor at Brown University, providing constitutional analysis for CNN, MSNBC, the BBC, and other media outlets. He has written numerous articles and is the author of The Oath and the Office, A Guide to Constitution for Future Presidents. Professor Corey Brettschneider, welcome back. To the public morality. Uh, thanks. My pleasure to talk to you. I always enjoy the conversation. Looking forward to this one. Yeah. No, I, I think it's time that, that we officially change the name of the show to Brett Schneider and Williams Report. I'm telling you. Yeah. I, 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 <laughs> what an honor. Thank you. I mean, they, I more people know subtitle. you on the show than they know me. Is that, is, uh, we don't uh, want to hear you, Byron. Is that, is that Corey Brett Schneider? Is, gonna, is he going to be back on? Call us when he's back on. Yeah. <laughs> You're too kind. Well, I did interview you that one time, that, so yeah, I sure. guess maybe the role reversal confused <laughs> everyone. All right. So, um, first of all, congratulations on the book and the, and the new series for for Penguin Liberty, and and and, and let's begin, um, if you would, with the series itself. What talk about its origin, its purpose, and and um, how did you get involved? Sure. Um, uh, you know, uh, my thought was a kind of simple one which is that liberty is under attack in a way that really it hasn't been, certainly in my lifetime. Uh, and I'm thinking uh, not of liberty in the sense that people who don't want to wear their masks are talking about it, but liberty in a deeper sense about uh, our democratic liberty, the liberty of self-government, uh, the liberty of the freedom of speech that's necessary to self-government, the liberty of the freedom of conscience, including the freedom of religion, that's essential in a republic that's going to have the kind of citizen that can think for themselves make, and, in turn, make decisions together for all in the interests of the common good. And so given the, the obvious assault on liberty, which you and I have documented and talked about um, over a long period of time, especially uh, coming from the president, uh, my thought was, you know, what can you do in response? We could write another book about Trump's injustices, or we could do something deeper that's more along the lines of what you've talked about in your columns and that you've done with your uh, civic education group, and that's turn to the great thinkers uh, of history in order to uh, think about liberty in this deep way, in order to counter this assault on it. And, uh, you know, that doesn't mean just turning to familiar thinkers uh, from the you know so-called canon of political thought, although that's part of it. People like John Stuart Mill, for instance, and his famous On Liberty, which will be a part of the uh, volume on free speech, but also uh, voices that aren't as well-known but should be and are classics, and this is a series for Penguin Classics, Penguin Liberty, um, and uh, so that includes people like Ida B. Wells or um, uh, people who are known to some but should be known to more, like Frederick Douglass. Uh, so in our first volume on impeachment, I highlight uh, Frederick Douglass's critique of 
uh, of not just of uh, President Johnson, the white supremacist president that um, uh, Douglas rightly opposed, but yeah, also of Andrew those who were, <laughs> sorry, Andrew Johnson. But yes, sorry, I misspoke. No, no. Uh, of, of Andrew Johnson, uh, the white supremacist president of the 19th century. But also what he says is, look, you know, when we critique him, we shouldn't use legalistic terms. We should talk about the broad moral problem here. And that's his, uh, Johnson's assault on, on reconstruction, on the idea of equality. Uh, so, yes, the series is, uh, you know, kind of familiar works like Mill, less familiar works like Ida B. Wells, and uh, works that should be familiar, certainly, uh, like Frederick Douglass, and um, that's the first. And then, of course, what we're talking about today is, is the, uh, the other volume that's just come out uh, the last couple of weeks, and that's the Decisions and Dissents of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, the most important civil rights pioneer in the area, in particular of women's rights, but, but more generally we'll, we'll talk, too, about her contributions to, to many areas of law, both as a litigator and also as a Supreme Court justice. Well, how was it that um, you decided that uh, her decisions, her dissents, her, her amicus briefs would be the, the initial uh, entry into the series? I um, thought, you know, with uh, Thurgood Marshall, I think they are really equals in, in their pioneering work, that she just had this unique career, and there was a lot of celebration and interest in her, but not familiarity really with what she did and what she accomplished. And uh, so the idea was to kind of highlight the way that she, as a litigator, pioneered the notion that the Equal Protection Clause, although it was primarily in history in the 19th century about rectifying uh, racial injustice and white supremacy, uh, that that same principle extends to thinking about women. And I wanted to really get people in their hands her own words not just the sort of quips, and there are many great ones. She said, of course, uh, how many women should be on the Supreme Court? When would you be satisfied? She said, when there are nine. And we know those kind of great, you know, interesting, uh, witty remarks. But I wanted people to learn the jurisprudence. And so to me, I thought I, we could use the interest in her life in order to teach uh, what you and I have often taught, the importance of the uh, three amendments after the Constitution, one ending slavery, uh, uh, the, the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, guaranteeing equal protection of law, and the 15th Amendment, uh, ensuring a right to vote free from discrimination, and to, to really focus on her role in, in particular, that equal protection clause and in, in expanding it to be uh, about race, of course, and we'll talk about her important work in the areas of voting rights, uh, in the areas of um, fighting white supremacy, but also uh, extending those principles to think about women as well. I thought, what, what a chance to teach about the Constitution, not to teach just about, about Ginsburg's life. You know, you, you, you mentioned the 14th Amendment, and for a long time, that's, you know, as you've been, the, the Due Process Clause, the Protection Clause, um, that's always been uh, uh, truncated by some, I should say that way, truncated mm. to mean that it was applicable only to slavery. But the first word right. of the 14th Amendment says all, which makes that argument sort of inconvenient. So talk about the role that Justice Ginsburg played in, and so that all became more part of the yeah. dominant ethos of the 14th Amendment. Yeah, I think that, that that's a great starting point for into her, her thought process, which is the text of the um, 14th Amendment talks about all uh, uh, no person being denied equal protection of laws 
uh, not no man. And that, that broad language of persons, of course, ex- extends to women as well. And so, you know, her point was that we should read the Constitution in terms of its principles, not just in terms of the, the specific history behind it. And even if the framers of that amendment weren't thinking specifically about women's rights, the words that they used in the principle certainly does extend. Now, she was writing this and, and thinking about this, and then she began litigating uh, as a law professor and working for the ACLU, uh, uh, in a world in which that was seen as completely foreign, that it was just accepted that women uh, were less than men before the law. And just to give you a, a radical explanation of that, you know, one of her first cases uh, is about a tragedy in which a, a child dies and a separated couple is battling it out over who's going to basically be in charge of, of the will. And um, the law at the time says the man is, you know, when there's a battle between us, it goes to the man. Now, why is that? It just was an assumption of women's inferiority before the law. And that irrationality, she thought, was a good starting point in showing that, uh, of course, women are protected under the Equal Protection Clause. Well, we're, we're going to talk about some, some specific cases momentarily, but I, I wanted to know, uh, from your background as a political scientist as well as a law professor, um, I know you're familiar with all of these writings, but did anything jump out at you in the editing process? Uh, her words are um, just so sharp and speak to us. They're about universal themes that, you know, long after her, her, her passing is unfortunate, but we'll have her wisdom, I think, to last us for a long time. Um, so, you know, one thing that I've really been thinking about, and I'll probably write something about it, is her dissent in Bush v. Gore. And, uh, you know, this moment as we deal with the president threatening not to have a peaceful transition of power uh, really speaks to me. And I think depending on the moments that we're in, she wrote about so many areas. She was on the court for such a long period of time that we'll be able to to draw from from her words in in all sorts of areas. Um, And, um, you know, she was eloquent when talking about women in particular. And the calmness that she exhibited, you know, in the face of such bigotry towards women and, um, you know, her inability to get a job despite being such a powerful uh, law student, um, uh, powerful intellect, uh, and and the sort of eloquence in the face of, of that adversity, I, I find that inspiring. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with political scientist and law professor, author, and uh, dare I say friend of the public world. Yeah. Professor Corey Brett Schneider, and, and and we're discussing the newly great released, friend, great friend indeed, and we're, we're discussing <laughs> the newly released entry in the Penguin Liberty series, "Decisions and Dissents" of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, edited by Professor Brett Schneider. Which you're you're going to edit the entire series, is that correct? Yep. Okay. Yep. That's right. right. So, and uh, you know, it's not just um, her words, of course; it's her words and my explanation. So, the kind of annotation that you and I are doing as we talk about the case cases, that's, that's, as you know, how the book's structured, that it really begins uh, with an introduction to her accomplishments, her legacy, and then it starts from the beginning, uh, her early cases, and then all the way through her major cases on the Supreme Court, dissents and decisions, uh, where where I'm explaining along the way what's going on. So uh, these things, you know, shouldn't be intimidating to us, I think, with the, with the right guide, and this provides it, you know, all readers. Uh, including high school students, I think, can can appreciate her own words and, and their significance. Well, I want to discuss several of the entries that you selected. Now, 
I, per, in my own personal bias, I selected Notable Descents because I usually find Descents more interesting reading. I just, I'll just be yeah, honest. Right. <laughs> um, so, and I'm going to um, give you the case, but before you discuss Justice Ginsburg's particular descent, um, with each case, would you offer a brief distillation as you did um, uh, in, in, in the actual book? So I want you to repeat that process, yep. if you would. And the first case I want, I want to raise with you is uh, Ledbetter versus Goodyear Tie and Rubber Company. Yep. Uh, you want me to talk about it? Yeah, explain it, and then we'll, okay. we'll, we'll get into it afterward. But just explain the yeah, parameters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Lily Ledbetter um, brings a claim against her company, which is that she was denied uh, equal pay under a, under a law uh, guaranteeing her equal pay, regardless of, of gender or sex. And uh, she misses the deadline. Um, there's a time limit that's imposed uh, the way the statute's lit, uh, written. Now, her argument is the reason she misses the deadline is because they've hid the pay disparity from her intentionally, and they shouldn't be able to benefit from their own unjust actions, the company. And the majority, uh, I believe written by uh, Samuel Alito, uh, says, you know, hey, the law is the law. It says there's a deadline, she missed it, that's it. And Ginsburg writes this uh, really fiery dissent that uh, she actually reads from the bench, and it's a sort of dramatic moment in her career. Linda Greenhouse recently was talking about how this is really where she started to see that this, this was going to be a major justice in world history. And, and uh, what she says in the dissent is the entire purpose of this law is rectifying uh, a broad idea of discrimination and the idea that you would ignore the purpose of the law and this injustice that obviously the company hid from her what was going on uh, is is a real travesty of, of law, and not just of justice, but of law, that the intent of the law is really what should matter here. Now, what's significant about the dissent is that it gets a lot of media attention, and eventually legislation is passed that reverses the Supreme Court. This is a case based on, a, on an ordinary legislation, not on the, on the Constitution itself. And so it can be reversed with ordinary legislation. So, you know, one reason I think it's so important to talk about is that People ask all the time, like, what's the point of a dissent? Is it just sort of a principle standing up to power? No, it sets the stage for future actions, and in this case, future actions by the Congress that uh, then uh, rectify by it. And, you know, President Obama got to sign this law. It's called the Lilly Ledbetter Act, and it really is a result of uh, Justice Ginsburg's dissent. Now, I would imagine that there's a historian listening to this conversation, and they're screaming at the radio right now, and they said, well, Professor Brett Schneider, um, equal pay for equal work was signed in 1963 by John Kennedy, so why are we having this conversation? Well, courts have to interpret the law. I think that's the, you know, that's the lesson that, that you really get in studying the court, that we think that we've achieved all sorts of monumental uh, moments of justice. And the truth is that laws are written, you know, sometimes with narrow exceptions, and that's why lawyers and judges have to get involved. And when you have a Supreme Court, in particular, I mentioned Delito, uh, but the theory of originalism or textualism, not just in constitutional interpretation, but in statutory interpretation, interpretation of laws by Congress, for instance, uh, they have ways of reading uh, the law that's narrow enough that it really undoes a lot of civil rights protections, and certainly that's what happened in this case, and that's what occasioned her dissent. And, 
you know, what do you do? You know, you could hope for a future case where you reverse it back, or you can just correct it through legislation, and that's what the Lilly Ledbetter Act had to do. Not, uh, you know, I agree with any historians yelling about this because the, the decision was wrong. I'm with Ginsburg in that dissent, and the original law should have been enough. But when it wasn't, um, the American people stepped forward and, and clarified the law and vindicated the dissent. All right, the next case uh, that I've selected... Uh, Borough versus Hobby Lobby stores. Uh huh. Yep. So another um, great uh, uh, statutory controversy. There's a law um, called. This is an ongoing one, by the way, called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and it sounds good on its face. It says basically, when the federal government is is acting, that there should be a protection for religious people, so that if their religious beliefs are affected adversely. Uh, they should, um, uh, uh, you know, have that be allowed to be exempted or, or have exceptions to the law. So let's get concrete. Hobby Lobby is a closely held corporation, uh, not a public corporation. And they say, look, you know, uh, Obamacare requires us to provide birth control to our employees, and we don't want to do that because our religious beliefs are at odds with it. And so we should be able to opt out of that. Now, uh, Hobby Lobby wins that case, but Ginsburg again writes a, a fiery dissent saying, come on, religious freedom is a terrific thing, of course, but the idea that a corporation could claim it to harm its uh, female employees is, is an outrage. That's not the meaning of religious freedom. You know, one of the things uh, with the Hobby Lobby decision that, that always struck me that, and um, why, why I personally was uncomfortable with the decision. Throughout our history, it's been my understanding that when we had when we expanded rights, for example, the Fourteenth Amendment, you know, the expansion of the Fourteenth Amendment with due process and equal protection didn't was not punitive to anyone, as was the Nineteenth Amendment and women's suffrage was not right. punitive to anyone. But when you go into the realm of saying that corporations have right. First Amendment privileges, that does harm the individual. Am, am, am I right? And talk about the ramifications yeah. of that. Yeah, and you know, corporations are not you and I. They have employees. They're not. They're not people in any real sense. They're they're entities established by law that are supposed to provide some kind of public benefit, not just profit. And uh, they enjoy advantages and tax advantages. And you know, I think part of what she was saying is, give me a break. This isn't a, some person. Uh, just wanting to opt out of a requirement. And so, you know, there are cases that are very different. Um, uh, still controversial, but not not like this. So um, uh, somebody doesn't want to work on the Sabbath because they celebrate it on a Saturday, uh, claiming uh, unemployment, rights to unemployment because they were fired. Um, you know, that that's a, a specific kind of recognition for an individual. And here, I think the point of her dissent is, it's it's partly the point about corporations, but it's also... Equally important, your your really salient point about harm that that uh, you know the, what the, this supposed religious freedom is harming individuals who want access to birth control and uh, the idea that there's some abstract principle here of religious freedom that should trump the rights of actual people. Uh, I don't think so. That's her point. Okay, um, the next case, uh, one of my. All-time favorites, and I say that in jest. Shelby County versus Holder. Hmm. Yeah. 
you know, I, I pr- promised in the beginning we talked about her women's rights cases, but also her broader uh, protections about those that Reconstruction, uh, those three amendments after re- uh, during Reconstruction, and and you know certainly the right to vote free from discrimination is crucial. And when in 1965 the Voting Rights Act was passed, an amazing mechanism was put into place, which gave the Justice Department the ability to really scrutinize those places in America that had a history of discrimination when it came to voting against African Americans. And in this terrible case that we're really today seeing the the suffering from, uh, the court got rid of that. They said they hadn't updated the formula that they uh, weren't being careful in, in who was being looked at. They also said some absurd stuff about how state, it's kind of like what we were talking about before, that this violates the principle of equal sovereignty of states that it's disrespectful to southern states because it, it emphasizes their history of white supremacy. And there again, you know, she just was having none of it. She, she, she wanted to say that uh, voting discrim- discrim- white supremacy still exists, basically, that voting discrimination based on race is not only something that exists, but it's something that Congress monumentally did something about. And so to come in now and usurp that is really... Um, uh, a tragedy. And, you know, as we watch the Trump administration try to use every dirty trick in the book to uh, crack down on supposed voter fraud, but really it's an attempt at voter suppression, uh, including, and then we look at states changing the rules or jurisdictions, these jurisdictions that were covered by the original 1965 Voting Rights Act, we see how right she was to dissent, that this is a real threat to democracy. The history of the Voting Rights Act, it um, it had near unanimous reauthorization over its 50-year period. What, what uh, I mean, and the fact that, and I think she mentions in the dissent, the fact that the Supreme Court would take issue or sort of disregard congressional will for that long, would disregard congressional right. will for that long, um, was unprecedented. Coupled with the fact, was there an an actual amendment that the majority cited to justify their actions? They're more focused on the inaction. So their point is that even if there were these reauthorizations, that what hasn't been altered is the specific formula to figure out what the rate, the, you know, I'm going to be blunt about it, what the, the districts with the history and ongoing process of, of uh, discrimination, white supremacy, uh, that Congress was really supposed to be doing more empirical research into that um, process. And, you know, their point is the laziness of Congress is responsible here. Uh, you know, should Congress have done more research and empirical adjustment? Maybe. But uh, I think what you're saying is right, that they, you know, they reauthorized the act. Uh, and the idea that there's somehow a huge difference between what happened in the 60s and what happens now I think that's overstated. Um, I, you know, there's amazing research by a Harvard professor uh, and a friend of mine called Maya Sen showing uh, the long history from the 19th century uh, in uh, uh, within states um, and throughout the country and the legacy of uh, slavery and segregation into modern times. So, you know, Congress was making a democratic decision, which was that they were going to stick with the original formula, because historically those were the places where discrimination happened. And it is, you know, the the conservatives on the court like to call the liberals activists. This is a terribly activist 
conservative opinion because it's usurping that that democratic decision by Congress. Um, talk about, if you will, before we before we leave Shelby County, talk about uh, you. You sort of touched on it, but what is the significance of preclearance? Uh, it's the the process that I was talking about, where the Justice Department gets involved in looking at these jurisdictions and deciding if they want to change their rules. So voter ID is you know an example of this. Uh, that they have to preclearance is the the clearance of the of the Justice Department. Um, its Civil Rights Division, in particular, is supposed to look at these plans and assess them and and show this is really about enhancing voting protections, not not suppression, not limiting it. And that's what basically that that important oversight, that role of the federal government, got got eviscerated in this case. And and we we must. You touched. You talked about it earlier, but we must uh, discuss Bush v. Gore. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's the case that haunts me right now because um, it's a case where the Supreme Court claimed that they were acting based on equality. That they said it was partly a deadline case that they they were trying to demand that the um, the the ruling by the Florida Supreme Court to continue the the vote count. Uh, be stopped and that the, the vote be certified according to the deadline set by the Florida legislature. Now, they had a couple of arguments there. One was that the Electoral College leaves it up to the legislature to set a deadline. Uh, Article 2 of the Constitution gives the legislature, not the court, that right. And then their, to me, kind of most shocking thing that they say is that counting votes, continuing to do the vote count, is a violation of the equal protection of laws, the same principle that Ginsburg uh, fought to defend, um, and why is that? Why is it a, a violation of equal protection of laws? Because they're counting votes differently. There's a national right to have your votes counted the same way, um, uniformly, and they're not doing that with all these hanging chads. Remember, they were counting in different ways the, the, the ballots and whether a ballot was a complete ballot or not. And the Supreme Court said you can't do that. Now, what's ridiculous about that is that Justice Scalia's you know, an opponent of expanding the Equal Protection Clause in that way to issues like like voting rights. And I actually have a story about that, which I think gives you an insight into why her dissent was so strong, which is that Scalia, not long after that, visited Princeton when I was a grad student, and I asked him this. I said, you know, how, how could you sign on to this opinion about equal protection? You, you can't stand this idea of expanding the national right of equal protection. Um, and he said, well, liberals like you always want me to, and now I finally did it. And I said, well, you know, that's very funny, uh, but <laughs> it's not your view, and that doesn't make... And he said an incredible thing, which is, you know, sometimes, basically, give me a break. This is how we do it. It's a mishmash. It's how the sausage is made. And, you know, we say things that I signed on to something that I don't agree with because I wanted that result. Now, he did have a principle of the Electoral College, I guess, that he was hanging on to, but that he would really sign on to something he didn't agree with always struck me as something that was uncomfortable and suggested that this election of a president was made by the Supreme Court and that it was, of course, partisan. It broke on partisan lines, and, um, you know, to me it wasn't law, and that's basically the point of her dissent. And it's a warning, too, about what we're facing now, that, um, you know, the court could do it again. How, how significant is it that Bush v. Gore is, is not a case that you could march into federal court and cite as, as some sort of legal precedent? 
it's a, a sign of how ridiculous the case it is that they say at the end this is not a precedent. I mean, what? <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? That's the meaning of a Supreme Court case is that it sets a precedent and that you try to deny that. Uh, you know, they were worried that, that that equal protection clause argument was going to be expanded to be used for uh, a broader principle of court regulation to protect um elections and they didn't want that and so they wanted you know it shows to me why that equal protection argument was so disingenuous so uh in in the time we have left what when you were editing um uh justice ginsburg's writings what was the commonality that, that links the writings whether it's concurring dissenting or or her uh, Amicus briefs. Was there something? Was there a commonality that that, that linked all of her writings or thinking? Yeah, I think so. And it's the idea of equality under law. I think if I had to find one theme, you know, Bush v. Gore is about the true equality of law. Shelby County certainly. And then you know the the highlight in the book is, um, and I know you know this, but I think readers will be interested in, in reading this. Is you see, you can trace her early ambition to get women equal recognition under law as a litigator. And she does this in interesting ways uh, through that case that I mentioned about the will, but also sometimes through defending men. So one of the one of the briefs in there is about near beer in Oklahoma. Uh, uh, men are not allowed to drink this near, near, near beer at age 18, but women can. And men have to wait till they're 21. Uh, low low alcohol content beer um, uh, sounds gross. By the way, I've never tried it. Uh, but I have. That's time, another story for another day. I've, <laughs> had, I've tried near beer, and so so is the producer Michael. He's like shaking his head. Like we all know near beer. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> she uh, she so she wins that case for a man and, and gets the court to establish using a, a, a male litigant the idea that we should be presumptively you know have some suspicion. Um, Against it, not quite in, in as strong a way that we do with race, but something in between what the court calls kind of intermediate scrutiny um, uh, when women are being discriminated against or, or men. And discrimination based on sex carries suspicion with it. And she really carries that through, and you see this in the book, through these litigation cases where she's a, a lawyer or writing amicus briefs. And, and then when she's a judge, she has this ultimate moment in one of the most important women's rights cases in American history, the decision about the Virginia Military Academy demanding that they admit women. And she writes that opinion. Uh, and she's citing Sandra Day O'Connor, who's in turn in a case that was citing uh, to, to Ginsburg's litigation. And so it's really full circle that this young lawyer uh, is able to vindicate her own principles as a Supreme Court justice in this case, demanding that, yes, women can compete with men. Women can, uh, some women have the physical fortitude to, uh, to make it in the, in the rigorous training of the, of the Virginia, um, uh, of VMI, um, of that military institute. And, um, you know, it, I mentioned Thurgood Marshall in the beginning. I should pay tribute to him. Uh, you know, Brown versus Board of Ed is not Earl Warren's creation. It's a, a result of enormous strategy and argument and, and the brilliant moves made by Thurgood Marshall, who, of course, when he becomes a Supreme Court justice, uh, is able to, from the bench, vindicate those same principles. Uh, you and I have had these conversations in the past, and so, um, and uh, I'm, I'm going to throw it back to you now. Um, the uh, title of this book, the, the, the decisions and the sense of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, 
Why would anyone who is not an attorney, not a judge, not a radio host read this text? <laughs> yeah, it's broken down in a way so that you can see how what, you know, you might at first think, oh, these are intimidating words of lawyers and of a justice. No, these are the, the creed of the American experiment, the idea of the simple idea of equal protection of law carried through into a series of exciting, sometimes bizarre facts, like that near beer case. And what I like about her writing, and, you know, I've edited it for this purpose, is that you can, anybody can read it, and you can see these principles come out. And so it's a civic education in the American Constitution, and it's using her words to educate America, students, uh, parents, <laughs> you know, uh, civic groups like your own. Uh, about the meaning of the American Constitution. And, and so I'm happy to see that it is, uh, as a sort of tribute to her life, uh, it's a way of using it to use her words to teach America about the Constitution. And that's why we're not selling it to lawyers or just to students or law students. It's, it's you know, in bookstores, and, and Penguin is really promoting it. So, so with the idea that if you're going to defend liberty, uh, this is an important resource to look to. And if you want to fight Trump, look to one of the best fighters of Trump, and that was Justice Ginsburg. And you can do that by reading her words and bringing them to friends and to discussions that you're having with people. And, uh, you know, lots made of her friendship with Scalia. I'd say they're frenemies, you know. Yes, they rode on an elephant together. They got along. But she was deeply opposed to his vision of the Constitution. You see that here, too. Uh, and worried that there was a kind of slow coup going on by members of the court who were usurping rather than defending democracy. And if you want to get that, see how that's happening and see how to push back against it, uh, read the book. The title of the book uh, is uh, The Decisions and Dissents of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, edited by Professor Corey Bretschneider. Uh, Professor Bretschneider, I want to thank you once again for joining us on the public rally. And, and one more thing, who's our guest next week? On, on the williams Schneider Report, or the Schneider williams Report. Who's our guest next week? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you, that, you, you're in charge of getting us a guest. I mean, <laughs> you, you got, is I didn't know that was part just, of my job. Yeah. That, I thought I just got the name. No, you, you got to read <laughs> just, the fine print. You I gotta, was happy to accept the, na- the name, pardon, being uh, part of the show's name. Okay, I'll have to get on it. Yeah, get us a guest now. For, for <laughs> yeah. All right. No, but thank, thank you, thank you, my friend, for once again, and congratulations on this text, and I, I hope it is widely read. It deserves wide readership. I'm, uh, I just read it, and we'll read it again, so it deserves wide readership, and, and kudos to you. Thanks so much, and thanks for highlighting Penguin Liberty and our attempt to, to fight back against uh, the assault on liberty currently going on. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. And in the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us on the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. (laughs) ¶¶